a spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Hello, and welcome to the 80th episode of Curiosityness. Wow, 80 episodes, crazy. I am Travis DeRose, the host of the show, and thank you for being here. This is Curiosityness, where we learn about fun, interesting topics and ideas, and I talk to interesting people, and this episode's no exception, because I have on Stephen Arrington, and Stephen was the co-defendant in the John DeLorean drug case. So the big drug trial of the century with John DeLorean that took down his company and everything, Stephen Arrington is on the cover. He's on the cover of Los Angeles Times right next to John DeLorean, and he was the co-defendant. So we go through and hear his whole story of how he got involved in this. He was the one who drove the car that had the cocaine in it that busted John DeLorean. So he talks about that whole story, and then we even get to dig into his life and his experience in prison. He was a firefighter as an inmate, and then he got out of prison and became a chief diver and worked for the Cousteau Society. So it's just a crazy story, and Stephen has a really good message to share along with all this. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. If you love DeLoreans, you're definitely going to love it, but even without that, it's awesome. So let's get to it. Here is Stephen Arrington. All right, Stephen, thanks for being on the show. Hey, Travis, it's a pleasure. Man, stoked to talk to you. It's just like, I mean, I found you, you know, through, because I've always loved DeLoreans. You know, I, a couple episodes ago, I talked to the vice president of the, you know, kind of the new DeLorean company. And so, have always loved the story of John DeLorean and everything and dig into it and eventually inevitably stumble upon you and your story. And, you know, you're right there in the newspapers with it, but then start reading your book and you just have the most incredible life story, man. It's awesome. Well, what I really like to focus on is, is um, as I, I go around, I'm a motivational speaker, international and writer, and um, I focus on uh, hope that never surrenders. That's my theme. And I, I use adventure to capture people's attention. And so I have really positive adventures and I have some uh, not so positive adventures to share. Right. Yeah, dude, I love it. it. You know, that's the hook that brings you in. And then, yeah, your book, well, we'll mention your book, In DeLorean Shadow, The Drug Trial of the Century by the Soul Surviving Defendant. So, like, you, you, that's the hook that brings you in there, man. And then, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. So, I mean, I guess we should just, uh, just dig into it and talk about your story. But So, why did you write this book, I guess? Well, I, I felt a real need uh, to communicate. I've been a, a communicator uh, most of my life, uh, you said you used the word stoke, so you might be a surfer. I do a bit of surfing, I, yeah. Oh, okay, I used to live on the North Shore of Oahu, and I surfed, and I also did surf photography. Right. And I, I started off by doing uh, surf slideshows on the North Shore, and I was shooting some of the top surfers, and so uh, I found that, hey, this is fun. And then, you know, I got, I got invited to the really cool parties and stuff like that because of my slideshow shows and then I narrated them and I got into it and then I became a motivational speaker and writer because I have a real message and I, I truly believe that uh, in here in the United States but around the world that this is the most challenging time ever to be a young person growing up because they, they get hit with a barrage of choices 
And you make good choices, you can have a really great time and a lot of adventure. And you make bad choices, you can you can live your real uh, life nightmares. All right. Okay. So, I mean, you think there's kind of more kind of growing up now. I mean, I'm I'm 26, so I don't know, kind of still growing up, you know, right? But uh, you think we just kind of have more choices than say when you were my age? Oh, absolutely, totally. Uh, there's so there's you know, you look at media, all the impact, uh, it, it never goes away. Uh, now, um, a young person's bedroom or a child's bedroom is a, a media platform. Uh, they have video, they have television, they have their cell phone, uh, they have their computer, they have all these chats. Uh, and it, let's say somebody's being bullied. Uh, well, you know, you got bullied at school and then you came home and you could relax. Well, not anymore because bullying can go on 24 hours a day. Yeah. Uh, and something with your generation, um, suicide is the number two killer of people your age. Man, man, oh man! You want to know? What, you want you want to know what the number one killer of people your age is? Yeah, hit me with it. Homicide. Really? Yeah. Actually, wait. Let me rephrase. I said that wrong. Homicide is number three. Okay. Suicide is number two. Number one is drug overdose. It, what? It, number one had always been accidental death. But they changed it from accidental death to um, uh, unintentional death. And unintentional was because people are doing uh, drugs. And so the number one cause in the unintentional death category is drug overdose. So you're looking at drug overdose, suicide, murder. Uh, I call it Battlefield America uh, for your generation in the United States. And I'm, by the way, I'm 71 years old. Man, man, oh, man, that's I had never heard those stats before. That's that's uh, kind of depressing. Well, your viewers need to take a look. Uh, go to the CDC and look up mortality stats. Uh, and this is a two-year-old study because it's always delayed by two years, but it's been consistent for the last number of years. And by the way, this statistic goes down to uh, eight-year-old kids. Whoa. So they're, they're dying from an unintentional death, and very often it's drug overdose because somebody brings something to school. Uh, and then suicide, number two. And as such, yeah, this is a hard time to be a young person growing up. And so I've, I've made the commitment of my life to try to help young people with choices. And um, I'm a motivational speaker uh, and a writer. And, and what I try to do is motivate young people. I want them to know that your dreams can be your adult reality. Mm -hmm. Man, okay. I like it. So this is good. This is, we really like established your why. So you've seen kind of the effects that all these choices and stuff can have on young people and, you know, uh, the, the horrifying statistics and everything. So, but why does, why do you find yourself qualified to, you know, be a motivational speaker? And, and maybe that means we should just kind of start, you know, going through your story and your book and kind of your, your beginnings, maybe. What do you think? Yeah. No, it's a good idea. I'll, and I'll try to lay it out really fast. And uh, for your listening audience, I want you to know I've had the privilege of doing over 3,700 public school assemblies in seven countries and 49 states. Um, and when the very first thing I tell young people is that I'm never boring. <laughs> uh, you, know, you, you lose somebody. And I want people to know that this is going to be a really fun, adventurous program. You're going to learn a lot. I want to come back to my main theme that hope, um, you know, hope, I, I believe in hope that never surrenders. Uh, you never give up. 
And always try to be the best you can and do good things for other people and good things will happen to you. I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in an abusive family. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic uh, and he used to womp on my brother and I about every other night. I was terrified to go home. Uh, the rule in our house was is when you come home, shut up and go to your room or just be quiet. Uh, and, and so I didn't have any real strong parental guidance. Uh, he moved out when I was 14, and I was excited. It was the first time I could come home and not be afraid. Uh, I, in high school, I graduated at the very top of the lower third of my class because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't care about doing homework, and nobody else did. Right. And uh, when I joined the Navy, my mom couldn't wait for me to get out of the house. I did four tours in Vietnam, never hurt anybody, never got hurt. A uh, memorable event for me is I came home from my first tour in Vietnam. My mom never wrote me, and I went to her apartment. She had moved, never told me. Jeez. And so I did not have a, a really I mean, much of a home life and a family. And now I'm married, and I have kids, and I now realize my wife has taught me about love and about caring. And this is one of the challenges that young people are going up with today. Is is the you know the divorce rate, uh, and and we're losing parents. We're losing parents to drugs. Mm-hmm. But I've I've gotten a little bit away. Let's take it back to the story. When I graduated, when I graduated from high school, I joined the Navy. I wound up becoming a Navy bomb disposal frogman. Uh, it was a blast. I got a real bang out of it, and I know I'm bombing these jokes, but it's fun. <laughs> And I had a real adventurous naval career. I jumped out of airplanes. I disarmed bombs. I worked with uh, sub- submarines. I worked at the CIA on an operation. I worked at the Secret Service. I loved it. The military became my family. I was the chief of uh, Explosive Ordnance Disposal Mobile Unit 1 Team 11. Uh, and you called me. I was Chief Arrington. And I, I took a lot of pride in that. And then I started to surf on the north shore of Oahu because I was stationed in Hawaii. And I had a new group of friends. When my friends weren't surfing, they were on the beach getting stoned on marijuana. Mm -hmm. My friends are using a drug. Hey, of course, I start using a drug. And this is my first really big point for young people. And that is, is that we're social creatures. And uh, if somebody's doing something good, they're going to try to involve friends and maybe family. But if they're doing something bad, they're also going to try to involve their friends and maybe family. Right. And this is why it's so, so, so very important who we choose to hang out with in life. Yeah, totally. I, I definitely agree with that. So I got caught. Uh, what, what I mean, I got caught. It wasn't just caught using marijuana. I was a Vietnam vet for tours. That's where I got into it, uh, or was at least introduced to it. Mm-hmm. And um, in Hawaii, they had a very lackadaisical attitude on marijuana. And so I started smoking. And, and what we would do is there's people in the command who smoked. And I might go buy, say, an ounce of marijuana, which was a big purchase. But I don't want to smoke a whole ounce of marijuana. So I would sell three, pe- uh, three quarter ounces to friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'd sell me a quarter ounce. So we're talking really small scale sales. And we didn't smoke all the time. I mean, it was just a recreational thing. And these, that's how we saw it. Right. I, didn't see, I didn't see anything majorly wrong with it. But um, one of the people in the group got caught, and he set me up on a on a controlled buy, and that ended my military career. Man, and I loved my career. 
And it, suddenly it was over. I was, you know, all this adventure, all this wonder and everything else. And now the Navy doesn't want me anymore. And this was all over two ounces of marijuana. Man. So now here's the, here, here's the important point, uh-huh. Travis. Go ahead. Whose fault was that, that I lost everything? I mean, I got to say, seems like it was your fault. Yeah, absolutely. Travis, I really want, you know, if you had listeners who called in, I would tell this the same thing. As we go, ask me the tough questions. You know, what mm-hmm. leaps to your mind and you might go, hey, I really don't want to ask the guy this. Look, I speak in prisons. I speak in youth lockups. I speak in colleges and universities. And I, I speak at schools where schools at risk where there are gang members there. And I, I get hit with a lot of questions and I have interesting answers to them. But yeah, it was my fault. And mm-hmm. it ended my career. And I got out of the Navy. I joined. I went, started going to college again. I was uh, already like a sophomore in college, finishing up my sophomore year. And so I went back to college. And while I was doing that, I was working in a surf shop going nowhere. And I still had a marijuana habit. Mm-hmm. And I get a phone call. I was working at a surf shop. I get a phone call from an old mentor who I hadn't seen in seven years. He was an aviation engineering genius multimillionaire when I knew him. Mm-hmm. And he said he'd been looking for me, and he wanted to hire me as a, uh, a pilot and as a right-hand man, and he was going to start me off $50,000 a year. This was 35 years ago. Yeah. And I said, wow, this is really cool, because I was working for not more than minimum wage. This is great. Yeah, sure. And so I go to, I go to work with him. He tells me he's going to get me an airplane. I'm going to be flying airplanes. This is really fun. But I find out that really I'm more his companion than anything else. And uh, he had a boat. We go out to the Bahamas and go diving. And I, I was a scuba instructor. And then one day he said, "Steve, I need you to uh, co-pilot the big plane to Columbia." And I said, uh, "District of?" And he said, "No, as Columbia, as in that powdery white stuff." Ooh. And I was floored. You know, I saw that the man had, you know, there's a corruption to him that I hadn't seen much of before, but there was a corruption to him. I had hints. So what I'm about to tell you is whose fault? Yours. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, when he told me he wanted me to co-pilot plane to Columbia, and this is all court record, I said no. I said, I'm not going to do this. I was, right. I was mad. And he said, well, look, um, he had offered me 50 grand to co-pilot the plane. He said, come on, we got to go into this hotel. I got to pick up some money and I need you to go with me. And he took me into a room in this hotel and introduced me to the number one man for the Medellin drug cartel named Max Mermelstein. And there were three Colombians in the room with guns. And I was told it's really simple. In Colombia, way of a saying is called silver or lead. Take the money and do what you're told or take a bullet in the head. Jeez. You know, what do you do? You know, I lost. I lost, I thought I was a macho guy. I mean, I was a bomb disposal frog. Okay, I was a, I was a combat underwater swimmer. Uh, I was in, in, in special warfare teams. I thought I was macho. And, uh, I completely lost control of my life. Yeah, these guys. These guys were professional bad guys. Man, and there's See, something about me, and I think you can tell from my voice and everything else. I'm a nice guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that comes across. Okay, well, how did it happen to me? It happened with two ounces of marijuana. Man. And what, I, it led, and what that directly led to was my going down to Columbia as a co-pilot of a twin-engine aircraft. I went down to the headquarters of the Medellin drug cartel in the jungle, and we came back with 650 pounds of pure cocaine. Jeez. 
And at the time, that was the largest known drug haul in U.S. history. We're talking 1982. Oh, my God. Two ounces of marijuana to a quarter billion dollars worth of coke. That's what the prosecutor put it at. It wasn't worth that much. But the point is, is I'm suddenly in with really, really scary people, and I don't know how to get out and not get killed. So you still attribute all this to it's in your like, do you see this as being your fault or your your choices led to this? Absolutely. He see the guy who hired me. I I didn't know it, but he actually targeted ex-military who had who had gotten out with a drug problem. Oh, man. So it was the marijuana that that set me up in the first place. But it wasn't the marijuana. It was that I made a choice. I made a choice. And this is why I tell young people, you can make 99 great choices, and you can make one that changes your life forever that's bad. Yeah. So really focus. If you want to have a happy, fun life, do good things for other people. Mm-hmm. And so I was then ordered to drive a car from Florida to California, and I just wanted out. I didn't know how to get out without getting killed. And uh, he ordered me to drive this car, and he told me he was going to let me go. After this, just, you know, he was letting me go on vacation because he wasn't giving me any cash. He wasn't giving me enough money that I could, you know, get away. He wanted to keep me under his thumb. Mm -hmm. And so I'm ordered to drive this car across the United States. And I'm making the story short. I know it's an exciting part, but there's so much more that's far more exciting to come. And so I drive this car and there's another person in the car. We won't talk about him. (laughs) And I get to California and I made a decision that I'm not going to deliver the car. And so I call him up in Florida and I say, Morgan, his name, his real name was Morgan Hedrick. I call him up and I say, Morgan, I'm done. I'm finished. I'll give you the keys. I'll tell you where the car's at, but I'm walking away. Right. And he said, no, you're not. Because mm-hmm. the Medellin cartel is going to go through your family like a chainsaw. You deliver that car to the hotel. So I went to the hotel the next day without the car. Oh, he was mad. So he had two guys come down from this elevator. He called and went up to his room and brought him down. And he said, these are mafia hitmen. No games. To them, he said, take the idiot to the drug car and bring back the cocaine. Hey, Travis, notice he didn't say bring back the idiot. Yeah, good point, huh? And they're hitmen. I think these guys are going to kill me. Jesus. And, okay. And as we're driving, I'm driving to where I had abandoned the car at the Van Nuys Airport about 40 minutes away. As I'm driving, uh, the guy, Louie, the, the hitman sitting next to me, says, so, hey, when we get to the car, are you going to have anybody waiting? Well, you know what? I think these guys are going to kill me. So wouldn't it be kind of smart to say, yeah, yeah, there's, there's people, there's guns, you know, you be careful. Right. I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> you know, when you're terrified, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard not to tell the truth. Yeah, I was right. terrified. I was terrified. I told him the truth. It was a very good thing because I didn't know it. We were being followed by four carloads of armed to the teeth FBI and DEA agents. And if I had got them fired up, I might not be here to tell you about it. Yeah, really? So we get to the drug car. Um, I pull it up next to the other car. I tell them where the cocaine's at. It's hidden behind a a trick back seat. And I jump in the car that I had driven over and I'm going to try to drive away and there's no keys in the ignition. And then I see a dozen men come running at me with rifles, pistols, and shotguns. And uh, I'm, whoa, what, what am I going to do? I, I can't get away, and suddenly the driver's door swings open, and a guy slams a thirty-eight revolver alongside my head, and he yells, move and die. And then the passenger door flies open, and a guy slams a shotgun inside my chest, and he yells, put, 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 put your hands up. What do you do? Move and die. 
put, 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 put your hands up. Yeah. <laughs> it's conflicting there, yeah. Yeah, I put my hands halfway up. I put them on the steering wheel. They were shaking. I thought I was going to throw up. I was so scared. Oh, man. And and then the guy with the handgun yelled the greatest words he could have yelled. He yelled, federal agent, dirtbag, you're under arrest. Mm-hmm. And what went through my heart and soul was incredible relief. These were the good guys. So you have good guys in life and you have bad guys. And I had been with the bad guys and I didn't know how to get out. Um, I wasn't arrested I was saved from a life that was out of control. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that was going to happen to me at some point in time without being saved by being arrested was somebody was going to put me in the ground or dump me in the river someplace else because I was not reliable. They knew I did not want to be a part of it. Right. And so a few days later, I discover that the cocaine from the back of my car is the same cocaine that wound up on the knee of John and was put in John DeLorean's lap when he did that famous footage of, uh, you know, this is worth more than gold. Yeah. Man, oh, man. Crazy. So you you but while you're driving the car and everything, you really have no idea of the connection to John DeLorean. It's not till after you're arrested that you find that out. Yeah, no, I, I have no idea that I have just stepped into the drug trial of the century. Yeah. Whew. I mean, my mom found out that I had been arrested by seeing it on television. <laughs> as did most of my as did most of my friends. Jeez. And then and now it's such a big time crime that people don't want to know you. And when I went into the uh, Parker Center, uh, which is where they interrogate, well, I first went to an AI uh, building. And uh, I was basically told it was really simple, is, is that I have this one chance to cooperate, one chance only, because if I don't cooperate, they're going to give it to Morgan because they just picked Morgan up. And they pointed out to me that I was facing 144 years to life due to the RICO Act, the quantity of cocaine, all of it. And um, they wanted me to cooperate. And, you know, every movie, every book I had ever read uh, about crime is, is if you cooperate, you're dead. Right. And and so I didn't have an attorney, but I just said, I'm not talking because I didn't know what to say. Yeah. And so they sent me off to um, Terminal Island Federal Prison and they put me in the hole, which is where people who've made major, you know, have done something wrong in prison go. And my new cellmate is the scariest, meanest, baddest African-American man in the prison. <laughs> Jeez. And the the FBI agent had told me that he's going to bury me so deep, he's going to put me in a hole. And so they did. They put me in the hole. And now I've got the scariest black man I've ever met in my whole life. He's huge. And he's just wearing underwear, boxer underwear. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a dirty, dirty cell. And I'm I'm terrified. You know, I'll admit it. I, <laughs> I've studied martial arts at that point for um, over 20 years, over 15 years at that point in time. Um, mm-hmm. I thought I was a pretty, you know, kind of a macho guy. Uh-uh. This guy was so, <laughs> he was so big. He was so bad. And um, I just got up in the upper bunk and I just fled into my memories, which is what I do a lot in the book. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the meals come. The next morning they bring in breakfast. And now he wants to talk to me, and he tells me to sit on the toilet, because that's all you got. So I sit on the toilet, and he had just done something horrendous on that, in that toilet. I was really pretty scared <laughs> about that. Jeez. And um, he's eyeballing my tray. And I tell him at that, point, at that time, I was a full vegetarian. And so there was something really strange in my tray, and I asked him what it was, and he said, it's fried bologna. And I said, yuck, and he snatched it <laughs> off my tray. 
and ate it. See, he was huge, and he wasn't getting enough food. And by the time we were done, he had conned me out of my milk. He tried to get my milk. He got my—all uh, I got was toast and milk. He got my uh, hash—not uh, my hash browns. He got my um, okra, and he got my uh, eggs, and he got my fried bologna. And we became friends. Nice. And the reason why is he wanted he he wanted to be with people. He wanted to have a friend, and everybody was terrified of him. Mm-hmm. And he started teaching me the ropes. Uh, and I was with that guy for a week. And people ask me, okay, here's here's a really good one, Travis. People ask me, what's it like to go to prison? Mm-hmm. And I I tell them, hey, think of the three scariest people you know. Invite them over, go into the bathroom, all of you, and then stay there for a week. <laughs> okay, jeez. <laughs> and so um, I, I spent a week with him, and then I went into a regular jail unit. And I became an inmate orderly. I was just doing my time. Um, I'm still waiting to go to trial. I, I have a, 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 an attorney at this point. Um, I wasn't going to cooperate. And the reason why, now, why, you know, why don't you cooperate? If you want to be a good guy, why don't you cooperate? Well, A, number one, people will kill you. Number two is, is if you cooperate, they start to use you in the, crimi- in the un- criminal underworld. And I wanted out. I wanted to get out of that world. And so I, I wanted to have a, a life again. Although with 144 years staring at me, I didn't think I was going to have a life again. Right. And so I'm going to be in prison for a long time, and I've got to make this work. And I don't—I have no clue on how to do any of this. But what I did is um, I became the inmate orderly. I, I found that I could get out of myself so many hours a day if I cleaned and served the meals. And part of that job was cleaning the hallway and cleaning the television room. And suddenly the guard comes in and he yells for me, and he locks—they lock down the whole uh, unit because there had been a fight. And I come out, and he brings me out, and I bring a bucket of water and a mop, and there had been a fight between two inmates. Uh, it wasn't really a fight. A young man wanted to watch a sporting event, and an, an old man wanted to watch a soap opera, and the young man just ignored the old man, and he changed the channel, and the old man picked up the metal uh, ringer out of the pop, and he slammed it alongside the head of the kid and fractured his skull. Jeez. And blood went everywhere. And so I had to clean this blood up. Oh, and the prison, prison was built pre-World War II. And as I take this bucket of blood and water down to the deep sink, and I, it's a very dark room. Um, the deep sink was cracked, stained, rusted, moldy. There was hair in the drain. And I pour this blood down the drain. I suddenly realized I was going to die in prison. Oh. And I went back to my cell and... Uh, Served the meal that night, but I'm back at, we're all in lockdown. And I'm up all, all, most of the night. And I think I'm going to die in prison. And I had been raised in a family that, that did not go to church, uh, except for maybe at Christmas or Easter. This is a show. But I remember about the blood will set you free. And I had blood all over me because uh, I couldn't get it all off with cold water. I couldn't get it off my shirt. Man. And so um, at around 2 in the morning, I got down on my knees and I started to pray. And I had always wanted to be a Christian, but I'd never made the commitment. And when I prayed this time, my whole heart and soul was into it because I had reached absolute rock bottom. Mm -hmm. And in my prayer, I remembered, I said, Father, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I've thrown my life away. Friends don't want to be my friends. My family doesn't want anything to do with me. But what about you? Are you there for a felon like me, a prisoner in a a jail cell? And I, I got an answer. 
Now, when I say that, I didn't hear some voice coming out of the sky. What I felt was this emotion that exploded in my heart. It just exploded uh, in this overwhelming feeling of acceptance. And uh, if it had a word, the word was always, Father, are you there for somebody like me, a, a felon in prison? Always. <laughs> and that changed my life in a heartbeat. Now, what it didn't do is it didn't take away my problems. Right. I'm facing 144 years in prison still. It It took the tragedy of the moment. And what it told me is, is that I still had value. Okay. And so I began to work on hope. And that hope became hope that never surrenders. Mm -hmm. And throughout the book, um, In DeLorean's Shadow, I show how that hope grows because miracles occur to me in prison that are life changing. Mm-hmm. Man. Okay. Well, so this is great. I love this. Um, let's jump back. I have a, a question about um, just kind of about the story, but why do you think, why did Morgan Hetrick kind of, you know, it, it, you're, you seem like, and you were, they knew it. You were reluctant to kind of be involved in all this. Why did, why do you think they continued to, you know, sort of force you to fly the plane and drive the car and everything? Was there something special about it or were they just kind of targeting, you know, ex-military people, like you said? Well, you know, I, I promise you up front that when you ask me questions, I would give you surprising answers. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't planning on sharing this yet in our story. Um, later on, I find out. I didn't know this at the time, but Morgan Hetrick had made promises to Pablo Escobar, to Max Mermelstein, uh, to Rafa, who's the number one hitman for the Medellin drug cartel, that I was the perfect person that they needed to set up a whole organization around. See, the, the, the problem about running co- you know, cocaine out of Colombia um, is, is that you have a lot of men and and women who are working in that profession who may not have even graduated from middle school. Uh, They're not well-educated. They're educated in life. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, drinking the rum and smoking the marijuana and doing the cocaine and uh, being a murderer and hanging out with murderers, uh, you don't normally wind up with people who have uh, very serious sophistication and things. And because they're so driven by their emotions, uh, they make mistakes and they lose. They lose. It's all about money. They're losing cocaine. People are getting arrested. They don't want that to happen. And so uh, Morgan Hetrick had presented me as a I was the chief of explosive ordnance disposal mobile unit uh, one team 11 is, is that they could build a high tech military commando smuggling operation around my leadership. Oh, okay. And I never, I never knew that. He actually was going to have me go down to Colombia. He was going to take me to Colombia and introduce me to Pablo Escobar. Jeez. And Pablo was going to put millions of dollars, uh, make it available to me to buy planes, boats, get people. And I never wanted to do this in the first place, and I certainly didn't know about that. So now I'm facing 144 years in prison, part of the RICO Act and everything else, and the man I work for is revealing to me that they had this big plan for me. Oh, my, guess what happens when the prosecutor hears about that? (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm never getting out of prison. Yeah, man, oh man, this is so crazy. And so this was Morgan's motivation because he had told these guys that he trusted me with his life. Mm-hmm. And that means whatever happens to me happens to him. Man, oh man. And so that is why he was so motivated. And um, what, it, what it finally came down for me is I knew I wanted to plead guilty. I just wanted, I wanted them to offer me something. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mor- my, the man I worked for, Morgan Hetrick, he cooperated and he told them that uh, they had twisted my arm. He said, the Medellin cartel twisted Steve's arm. Uh, well, when the Medellin drug cartel twists your arm, it means they usually have a knife in the other hand. Right, yeah. Or a, or a gun. I mean, it was that scary. Yeah. And so I determined that I was going to plead guilty. And I, I, I want to pr- I'm going to kind of push the story. We're going to leave. Well, no, we, we won't leave prison yet. But um, I knew that I wanted to plead guilty. Uh, the motions were made. Uh, they wanted me out of the case because if I was the first one who was going to get interviewed, uh, and by the way, now I find out that John DeLorean is my co-defendant. And um, John DeLorean, this is where it really gets really interesting, by the way, is is that um, he and I merged our, our cases together. Right, yeah. And when he did that, um, he had spent an incredible amount of money investigating the investigators and investigating the uh, Morgan Hetrick, investigating me, investigating um, the uh, uh, Hoffman, the uh, Jimmy Hoffman, Jimmy Hoffman, Hoffman, the uh, informant and the guy who set all this up. They had spent all this time getting gathering all, he, all this information on them. And so we merged our cases. My attorney got copies of all those investigative reports. We got copies of all the FBI and DEA reports. We got copies of what the DOJ, Department of Justice, was working on. And I'm now finding out uh, they have an informant, an, uh, a guy coming into my cell. And I, I call him an informant. Actually, what he was is he was an undercover FBI agent. He came in to tell me that they knew all about me, and he told me stuff about the case that could only be he would only know if people were cooperating. And he said, "We want you out. We know you want to do the right thing. We want you out of the case. If you will, if you will agree to do that, we're out of here right now. You and I are going to walk." But it doesn't mean that I was going to get. I was just going to go to a, another type of a prison or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could, I just couldn't do that. But that is, is what I was facing, and so I just wanted to tell my story of what I did. I wanted to cooperate against myself, basically. And uh, since you're since you're a DeLorean fan, I will share that in the courtroom, whenever we got called to court, DeLorean would be at one table, Morgan Hetrick would be at the other end of my table, it's a big table, and then I'd be at my end. And at DeLorean's, he had three attorneys for legal aids. Morgan Hetrick had two attorneys in legal aid. I had my attorney, one attorney. Right. And suddenly, one of uh, we're waiting for court to start. One of um, the assistants for the DeLorean team came over and whispered to my attorney's ear. And my attorney turned to me and he said, Steve, do you want to meet John DeLorean? And I said, sure. I mean, you know, well, okay. Yeah, right. And, and so I walk across the courtroom. I got two marshals sitting behind me. Uh, they're not supposed to let me out of arm's reach. I just stand up and walk across the courtroom. John DeLorean, we meet in the middle of the courtroom. And the judge is not there yet. And But the prosecutor's there. He's seeing this. And he says, he, he said nice things about me because he knew I wasn't cooperating and he wanted to thank me for that. And this, is, this was the precursor to he and I merging our cases. And then he leaned forward and he said, are you going to cooperate? 
Um, and I said, no. I said, I'm just either, you know, I'm going to do what my attorney tells me, but I'm, I, there's, no, there's nothing in that that I'm going to do. It's not who I am. And he said, that's what I've heard about you. I've heard you're a really good person. Thank you. And I thought, wow, hearing I'm a good person. Uh, and he, hearing that from John DeLorean, but nobody could hear what he said because he whispered in my ear. Mm-hmm. And then he walked back, and, and I'm walking back, and I sit down, and I turn around and um, realizing that I've been in prison here for probably about seven, eight months. And um, I'm a young single man. I was 30 or 32 years old, actually. And as you're walking across the courtroom, I see all these beautiful reporters, you know, ladies smiling at me mm-hmm. because they're hoping to get a statement. I see. Right. And I'm living in prison. And so I'm just going, whoa, this is such a, a conflict of emotions of, of what's going on. Prison, prison is absolute insanity. And it's it, nobody ever wants to go there, and it's it's really really scary. And you could do something that completely ruins your life forever. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, again, just pushing the story along, I decided to plead guilty. I went in and pled guilty, and at that point, I was facing thirty years in prison. And I had written the judge a letter, and I had asked him for five. Uh, which which shocked my parole officer. She never had anybody ask for a serious prison term. I asked for five years. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said it because I can do five years, because it'd be like three and a half I, you know, with good time. I right. can do this and not change who I am, uh, because I want to be able to come out as, as, as the person I'd always been. And so uh, the judge gave me five years. Wow. And I was stunned. And so do you... And I, well, I mean, do you kind Wait. of attribute that just to your sort of asking him? Yes, but it wasn't just my sort of asking him. Um, he had many, many, many dozens of letters of reference. He had an extremely positive uh, pre-sentencing report from a parole officer. Um, he knew that I had been a reluctant participant. He knew that I had said no. He knew that they had twisted my arm. Um, he knew that I wasn't cooperating because I wanted to get my life back. And I was the lowest man on the totem pole. There's nothing they needed to get from me except to have another witness to testify against John DeLorean and Morgan Hetrick. And see, when you start to testify against people, um, it's not just that person that's uh, being impacted by that. It's their family. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe that John DeLorean suffered more uh, than any of us in the case, because I believe that he was innocent of trying to put together a drug deal. And I, I point out all the facts and everything else that lead up to that, because this whole case was built um, by the Department of Justice because there was some money went missing. It was British government money that was put into the DeLorean Motor Car Company, and $18 million went missing. And somehow John DeLorean wound up with a, a good piece of that. And he tried to give it back. He said he just was just investing it in something else. He tried to give it back, and he, they wouldn't let him. And they wanted, um, Margaret Thatcher wanted him uh, back in, the, in, the, in England, the United Kingdom, so that he, she could prosecute him. And she was really mad. And so she asked Ronnie Reagan, and there's no documentation on this, but this is what happened, is, you know, I want John DeLorean 
And Edwin Meese was told to get, you know, put the word out, get DeLorean. And they're trying to build a whole case on DeLorean. And uh, in my book, what I share, because I have the files, is the FBI and the DEA and the Department of Justice thought that they were building this case, that they were developing it, that they were running it. And that's not what was happening at all, is they had somebody by the name of James Hoffman. And Hoffman was a master con artist, and he'd been working cons as an FBI for over 20 years as an FBI sting guy. And he was a felon and I believe a murderer and a few other things. And he's running this whole case. And he he ran it, not the FBI, not the DEA. And that is the reason why John DeLorean was acquitted, because he masterminded everything. Yeah. And. That's why that's why the case against DeLorean fell apart for the feds. Mm-hmm. And they, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask. So what what was, um, you know, I forget his name, the kind of the uh, the mastermind who did all this. What was his motivation for doing all that to, to kind of set up John DeLorean, I guess? Well, Hoffman was interested in money. Mm-hmm. And and he was he was a paid informant uh, for the DEA and FBI, and he was staying out of prison because he continued to do crime while he was an FBI informant. Uh, I'll give you an idea, uh, Travis. You're uh, you're in a drug deal with him, and um, you he's you're buying some cocaine and you got money on the table. And he walks in and he puts the coke on the table and you put your money down there, and he says, "Look, he says I I need to tell you something." He says, "I'm going to do you the biggest favor of your life. You have just a few moments to do this, and if it." If it doesn't work, then it's all over. And that is, is that they're going to think that you, you're going to give $100,000 for this cocaine. He says, I'll make, uh, let's make 75000 of it go away. I'll just hide it and we'll make it 25000 and um, And we'll say that this is, this is the total deal was this, was this five uh, pounds of cocaine, not the 25 pounds we talked about. And this way, you're only going to go away for five years. Right. And, the, and you would look at that. Yeah, sure. And then, and then, and then you'd get arrested by the FBI and DEA, and Hoffman just pocketed money. Jeez, man, this guy. And he he did this. He was he was a real dirtbag. Gosh. And so that's why John DeLorean was acquitted. Is when the FBI and the DEA brought their case, they called James Timothy Hoffman to the stand, and he had no credibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was a very good witness because he he'd been in court many many times. And then government agents get up and lie. And I've got the files, uh, and it was court record that they were that they were lying, and they went after a man who was innocent. And now, when I say this, I want to be real careful on how I say this. Is sometimes you're guilty of one thing, but you're not guilty of what you've been charged with. Mm-hmm. But a federal agent might go, "Okay, well." He's guilty of something, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to charge him with this because this is what I have. And that's what happened to John DeLorean. He may have been guilty of, of, of taking, you know, $9 million out of $18 million. He, he may have conned some people in business because he admitted doing that. Mm-hmm. But he, he wasn't a drug dealer. He wasn't a smuggler, and he didn't do drugs. Right. And so, so he, he, was a, he, he was acquitted. Okay, he wasn't. Right. A, he wasn't acquitted because um, um, he had been, you know, manipulated uh, as far as the court was. It wasn't from entrapment. He was acquitted because the jury found him innocent. Oh, okay. Man, oh, man. So he, this was all just kind of a whole setup. They just, uh, Margaret Thratcher just really wanted to, to kind of stick it to, to John DeLorean. 
she wanted his head on her wall. Yeah. <laughs> right. Man. And, and this is the kind of stuff that does happen. Uh, people wind up in prison who shouldn't sometimes. And sometimes people who should want go to prison don't. Mm-hmm. You know, it's part of that let's make a deal program that the Justice Department uses because they wouldn't get the uh, not nearly the number of uh, convictions that they get if they didn't have people cooperating against each other. Right. Yeah. For you, I mean, reading through your book and, you know, you're facing 144 years and, you know, the government's kind of telling you or asking you to cooperate and stuff that just seems like, and you're making these kind of almost split second decisions where you're, you're, they're offering you these things and you're having to decide what to do really quickly to to walk away or, or stay in, in the cell that you're at. Um, it just seems so tough and so stressful to make the, the appropriate calls, which it seems, you know, in hindsight, it seems you did. Well, when you uh, remember, I gave my life to Christ two two months or maybe three months out after my arrest, I gave my life to Christ. Mm-hmm. And I'm focused on doing nothing but good as best I can, because I'm not a goody two shoes. I was going to try to do good for the rest of my life as best I could. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to make good decisions, you know what? It's pretty easy to figure out what the answer is. It's just not always easy to say it and do it. Right. And so uh, for me, um, I told you, and you've read about the miracles in prison. Let's just give one really big one, if we could, for, for the audience. Mm-hmm. And that, that is, is that after serving 18 months in a, in, at Terminal Island Federal Prison, what a name, yeah. um, I got sent to um, Moha- uh, the, the high desert of Mojave to Boron Prison Camp. And because of my background as a being the chief of a bomb disposal team, now this is a really important point, is... When I was the chief of that bomb disposal team, you called me Chief Arrington. And I was very proud of that. And when I lost that, when I left my command in, in disgrace, when I fell from the ranks of heroes, because anybody walks in on a bomb to save people, you're a hero. Uh, I fell from that rank like an elevator on you know, rocket assist going to the basement. Mm-hmm. And I knew I'd never be a chief again. And so when I went to Boron Prison Camp, I wanted to do good with my life. And this prison camp, which was very remote, had something very special. They had an inmate fire crew that had their own fire trucks. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Uh, yeah, and this was 35 years ago. Before this is this is the precursor to all of it. This is you know in uh, inmate firefighters. You, you get a shovel. You, you know you get a rake. Uh, you you don't get a fire truck. Now they do. And and, and it's it's incredible. It was the most inc- Wonderful thing that ever happened to me in prison is my becoming uh, an inmate firefighter uh, with with a fire truck, and I was on that crew for no longer than two and a half months. And the chief engineer is released from prison. They let him out, and the inmates choose who lead them. The safety officer allowed that, and so I was the newest guy on the crew, and yet they chose me to be their chief. And I'm going, Lord, really? You're giving me back my title? Mm-hmm. I, I get to be, and I mean, a real chief. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm going to be the chief of, of this firefighting team. And I got to leave the prison 17 times, driving a fire truck, red light and siren. It's all the excitement of a prison escape, but we're, go- we're going out to save lives. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, it was amazing. And one of the responses, one of my last responses, is the uh, B-1A stealth f- uh, bomber, the uh, super fast you know, fortress, supersonic. Um, it flew from Edwards Air Force Base, so it often fly over our camp. It crashed in the Mojave Desert 
six miles from our prison camp. And we responded with four vehicles, a prison uh, truck, uh, another fire, my fire truck, a, a pumper truck, and an ambulance. And we had to go across the open, rugged desert terrain, and all the vehicles broke down except for my fire truck. Right. And we, we arrive on the scene. I had no idea what we were responding to. Uh, I just know that there's a downed aircraft, and it's being circled by fighter, a fighter jet, and it's a, big, it's a big fire. So I figured it was a B-52 Flying Fortress. Mm-hmm. And when we arrive on the scene, um, I see this incredible um, ejection pod. Uh, and the thing about the B-1A is the whole crew goes out in one pod. Uh, that was the only aircraft that ever, that, that ever happened with. Uh, and only four aircraft were uh, prototypes were designed along that line. But I was a pilot, and I knew what we had. And as I came in with the fire truck, I saw the hatch to the pod was closed, and so I know the men are still trapped inside. Right. And uh, something's wrong. And so I have two crewmen, two firefighters going there, and the rest of us are, are us battling this this fire and pushing it back and just protecting the pod. And then I see a dozen helicopters coming in. Well, first two helicopters come in and land, and one is a, a medical evacuation unit, and they fly off with the crew. And then another dozen helicopters land, and men jump out with rifles, and we're, you know, we're surrounded, but we're, they're helping us because we're fighting a fire, and they're amazed that you know inmates are on uh, first ones on the scene. <laughs> yeah, right. And I, I, for 20 minutes, I was in charge of an Air Force top secret crash site mm-hmm. as, as an inmate chief engineer. And um, I, because of that, again, we're trying to push this story forward because there's so much more to tell, is I was released early from prison, the prison camp. I went to a halfway house. And when I got to the halfway house, uh, the next day I met with my parole officer. And he told me he wanted me to go apply for a job at the College of Oceaneering. And I was stunned mm-hmm. because um, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to work for the College of Oceaneering. It was the most prestigious commercial diving school in the United States. I have a, a, a significant diving background, and um, I had a lot of talents that they could have used. And he wants me to go there and apply for a job? Right. And so I, I, I t- took the bus. It took a lot of the money that I had just to get there. And I went in and I interviewed. And when I got done, I said, so are you looking for somebody like me? And uh, the guy said, no. And I said, well, do you know anybody who might like to hire somebody like me? And he goes, no. And I go, well, it's been nice talking to you. And he goes, well, look, I just want to shake your hand. And as I shook his hand, he put some keys in my hand. And I said, what's this? And he says, keys to the college. I go, why are you giving me keys to the college? He says, you're our newest core instructor. I said, I thought you weren't hiring anybody. He said, I'm not. I said, wait a minute, what's going on here? He said, look, Steve, he said, I decided to hire you three days ago. We have been getting letters from the prison. We've been getting letters from highway patrolmen who've been with you on accident sites. Um, all kinds of people have been writing us. And actually, you, you're known. I was, I was known in the commercial diving industry. I was I've been an instructor in scuba diving and a CPR instructor for years. And so I was known. And, and three days out of prison, I'm now a, a core uh, subject instructor at the College of Oceaneering. Man, that's incredible. And these it's letters, than, well, you, and you didn't even know these letters were really being written, right? I, I had no clue. Yeah. It was all headed up by an FBI, by, not FBI, by a highway patrolman that I had worked with several times on accidents. Uh-huh. And he was, he was a Christian, and he saw that I had, he wanted to give me a head start. Uh, yeah. See, that's one thing that inmates need when they're getting out of prison. They need a helping hand. 
Because, and, and Christians often, they do this. And so uh, that, 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 those are very successful programs. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the, work at the College of Ocean Learning. I got, got an incredible job. And uh, while I'm teaching there, what I wanted to do is I, I had promised a judge I was going to talk to young people about choices. But I was too ashamed. I, I couldn't go to a school or a church and say, hey, uh, you know, I just got out of prison for smuggling, but I want to talk to your, your students about, you know, drug choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was praying on that. Father, help me. And one year out of prison, one of our students drowned. Um, he was in a heavy gear, uh, heavy diving gear. Uh, he got trapped underwater. Uh, he was cheating on a project. He made it unstable, and it fell on him. It knocked his helmet off of his head. On the surface, they heard him scream. They heard the helmet come off. They heard the bubbles of air leaving the, escaping the helmet. Oh, and they had, they had a stopwatch. They had two big clocks. They, they have a, a diving log. Everything's recorded. And they jumped a standby diver. Standby diver couldn't get him up. They dispatched somebody to the... Uh, uh, classroom where I was teaching diving medicine, and I grabbed my first aid kit and I ran. I was—I had been an EMTD, emergency medical tech diver, and a CPR instructor, and so I ran down to the barge, and he's still trapped underwater. And it literally on all these clocks—I mean, this is so well documented—he was trapped underwater without air for over eight and a half minutes. Ah, oh, jeez. And that means he's dead. Yeah. Uh, when they got him to the surface, I pulled him up onto the barge. Other people helped me, and he was purple from too much CO2, no oxygen. He, his, his eyes were fixed and staring, glazed over. He's dead. Mm-hmm. But as I, as I got down to do mouth-to-mouth and, and start full CPR, I was praying uh, in my mind, Father, Father, it's too late for me. It's never too late for you. Let it be your breath, not mine, your breath, not mine, your breath, not mine. And we did, I did CPR with other instructors cycling through for 20 minutes. And the fire department arrived, and they saw that he had a donor's card. Mm-hmm. So they figured, that, you know, they're transporting for him for uh, organ donation. Uh, and the next day, I'm in the classroom teaching when the uh, air diving supervisor burst into the classroom and said, uh, he woke up. <laughs> he woke up. He's alive. They can't find any brain damage. He's alive. Wow. And he returned to the College of Oceaneering, and uh, he graduated second in his new class because he had to be pushed back. Right. And something came of this that was very, very important is I told you I didn't have a very good family life. Mm-hmm. And I had a, somebody who I wanted to be my father. I wanted a Ronald Reagan to be. I wanted a father like Ronald Reagan. Uh-huh. I used to watch him on TV with the Westerns, and um, he did something called Death Valley Days, and he gave good advice. And I thought, I haven't even thought it kind of looked like him, but I, I didn't. Um, but I, I really, I felt that he was my commander in chief as president when I was in the Navy. And I always felt that I had failed, uh, Ronald Reagan. And so when, um, I got contacted by the, uh, fire department and they want, they gave me this huge award, this beautiful award for saving Chris's life. But then the red cross got heavily involved because none of their instructors had ever brought somebody back from eight and a half minutes doing CPR. And so they gave me the Certificate of Merit. That's the highest award from the Red Cross for life-saving. And it was signed by Ronald Reagan. Yep. And wow, I mean, that, was, that had all the impact of a presidential pardon for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more importantly is it told me that if, if God could use me to mechanically use my breath to save a young person's life, then I, now I needed to trust him that I could go out and speak at schools and churches. And I started doing that. Okay. And a, a, a year goes by, and I get a phone call 
Uh, I, like I said, I was known in the community. Uh, I had uh, the chief diver for the Cousteau Society actually attended my diving medicine class and uh, in hyperbarics, and I thought he was doing it to brush up on his knowledge. He was checking me out because Jean-Michel Cousteau was getting letters and, and people telling him that he needed to hire me. Wow. And, and uh, they did. They hired me. Um, uh, they called me up on the barge phone, hired me right on the right over the phone, and it's just getting ready to hang up the phone. Now, this is what's really important um, is uh, when I lost my title as being a chief in the Navy, I knew I'd never be a chief again. And then God gave me back being chief engineer of an inmate fire crew. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was a real chief because I led men in danger to save lives. And now as I'm getting ready to hand up the phone, Don Santee said, Steve, by the way, your new title is Chief Diver Expedition Leader. Crazy. And so it comes back again. And so now I'm still on parole. <laughs> I can't leave the country. Oh, right. My prosecutor argues to get me off of special parole that he argued to get me on so that I could tour the world diving with whales, dolphins, and great white sharks. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, they, they, they ended my parole. Uh, made me a real uh, a real person again, and um, I'm off on an odyssey of, of diving with whales and dolphins and sharks. I dove with great white sharks. I dove with humpback whales. I swam with lava underwater, and uh, th- all those adventures, all those adventures were just in- incredible. I mean, I've jumped into the water six feet with a 17 and a half foot long sh- a great white shark, and I have the videos to show it, and I have the story, and uh, after five and a half years of this incredible underwater adventures, I resigned my position as chief diver expedition leader for the Cousteau Society uh, in order to become a full-time motivational and drug education speaker for youth worldwide. Mm-hmm. And something I got to throw out here is, is that not only did I get this incredible position, I was an ex-felon, I was still on parole, and I don't speak French. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm in charge of a French ship and a French crew, and I don't speak the language. And they know I'm an ex-felon, so they're just thinking, this is bizarre. Mm-hmm. You know, why is this guy here? And for me, I knew what was going on because I, I, I had completely surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. And he, he's in charge and he got me that job. And by having that job, it gave me a, um, an avenue to reach young people. Because mm-hmm. I come in and I, I can talk about whales, dolphins, and sharks. Oh, my. Or I can talk about macho FBI and DEA agents. Or I can talk about wacko inmates and crazy prison guards. Right. I can talk about Colombian hitmen and throat cutters. What do you want to talk about? Yeah. <laughs> you got it all, man. Uh, you know, the Lord gave it, he gave it all to me. And this is why I've done over uh, 3,700 public school assemblies, uh, an incredible number. I believe I have spoken to uh, live audiences of between 850,000 and, and a million uh, people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm a comedian. Uh, I'm an adventure teller. I'm a, my gift is being a storyteller, but I'm telling real stories. Yeah. And I, and I have everything that backs it up. Mm-hmm. Totally. And so I, I, I love what I do. And people have told me over the years as I've done this, they said, Steve, you have lived the most incredible life. And I go, no, 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 you know, that's not quite it. I am living the most incredible life. Mm-hmm. Okay. And for me, when they say, you know, I, I resigned my position as chief diver and expedition leader for the Cousteau Society. I, I resigned that position. And people go, why? 
Well, I had just become a dad. And I, my first year of marriage, I was gone eight and a half months, and I, I really loved my wife. I wanted to stay married to her. Um, but I, I promised the judge that I would talk to young people. And I was getting so many requests. I mean, I speak in elementary schools. I speak to kindergartners through a university. I speak to kids in lockup. I speak to adults in lockup. Um, I talk to young people who are at schools to risk, uh, that are at risk. I, I talk to people who don't have a lot of hope, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm able to share how God has worked in my life, and it's obvious that these miracles are real, and that he's made, he's made all this stuff happen. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, when I was uh, out of prison, I guess about five, so I got two years uh, with the College of Oceaneering, five and a half years with the Cousteau Society, and then I started lecturing full-time, and then something happened is um, I'm speaking at churches and such, and people are saying, hey, Steve, you know the best places in the world to go diving. Why don't you take us diving? And I go, well, um, uh, you know, hmm. And then I had this idea. In Fiji, uh, when I went there with the Cousteaus, they were the most wonderful people. I thought, why don't we, why don't we do a mission work to Fiji? We'll go to Fiji, and we'll, go, we'll stay at the Jean-Michel Cousteau Resort. And we'll go diving in the morning, and in the afternoon we'll volunteer at the Fiji Government Hospital. Oh, cool. It was very cool. And so um, I proposed that, and people loved it, and I started taking people over to Fiji to do medical and dental. And we wound up acquiring 100 acres of land um, where we built our headquarters. And uh, we were joined by other uh, foundations that grew out of ours. And uh, the, we, it was called the Dream Machine Foundation. That's like you're dreaming at night. Mm-hmm. Uh, DreamMachineFoundation.org online. And um, we've, we've, we've been there for 23, over 23 years. And we have, we have saved hundreds of lives. We've treated tens of thousands of Fijians. We've uh, flown over a half dozen Fijians to the United States and other country for life-saving surgeries. And this is what I want people to know, is no matter how far you think you have fallen, doesn't you know you can always come back, mm-hmm. but you, you're gonna, you need help and you need to have a commitment. My commitment was to, to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And what while I'm doing all this, there's something else that happened. And um, I had applied for a presidential pardon, right? Yeah. And I was, yeah. And my prosecutor, I asked him if he thought I might get it, and he laughed. He said, "Steve, he said, look, as he's with the Department of Justice, he says a memorandum was circulated, a secret memorandum." Uh, under the Obama administration, is that he didn't want to see any serious criminals' uh, applications for a pardon come across his desk. And he said, Steve, he said, you're a defendant in the, in the drug trial of the century. There's not a chance uh, that you're going to get a pardon. This is not going to happen. Yeah, and sure. all, these, all these people told me, uh, yeah, you, you know, you're not going to get a pardon, Steve. Just forget it. I didn't make any contributions. I didn't do anything. But what I did do is whenever I spoke at a school, I asked him to write President Obama. And whenever I spoke at a prison, I said, you know, please write President Obama or write the Department of Justice, write the attorneys. And um, on January 17th, 2017, I'm in the kitchen getting ready to make breakfast for the kids. And the phone rings and I see the it's area code 212. And I thought, oh, Washington, D.C. But it's always been a sales call from Washington, D.C. Right. And I, I answered the phone and I said, Steve Arrington. 
And this voice, and it sounded like the voice was being manipulated. It said, Stephen, my name is so-and-so. I'm the pardon attorney in Washington, D.C. for President Obama. And I'm calling to tell you that President Obama is signing your pardon right now. Wow. And I thought this was a horrible practical joke by a friend who may not be my friend much longer. (laughs) And I said, is this for real? And suddenly he became very personable. He said, oh, yes, Stephen, I've been handling your case from the very beginning. He says, we have so many letters on you. Uh, Yes, this is real. Mm -hmm. And I cried. Actually, I bawled. (laughs) I sobbed and I bawled. I can imagine. Oh, it it was even to tell it now, I tear up. Yeah. Because, you see, I've been forgiven by God. But now I had been forgiven by my country. Yeah. And and this is, as you notice, these all these little things that are where my life changes in a really powerful, wonderful way. Is it because of what I did or is it because people believed in me and they appreciated that I was trying to do good and they wanted to help me along the way? Mm-hmm. And this is why if you want to have the most amazing life in the whole world, Spend your life doing good things for other people, not expecting a reward. Do good things, and you will have the most amazing life. I mean, think about it. I got out of prison early. I became chief engineer of an inmate fire crew. I didn't get attacked in prison, which could have happened. People actually stood up for me uh, to help to, uh, to help keep me from getting in trouble. Um, I get out and I get a job at the College of Oceaneering. I mean, come on, what's the chances of that? Two years later, I go to work for the Cousteau Society. I go on this adventure of diving with whales, dolphins, and sharks. And then I get out and I'm suddenly going all over the United States, over 3,700 public school assemblies. I'm working uh, DARE, the the drug uh, resistance education program, drug Mm -hmm. abuse resistance. Uh, They sponsored me into 36 states. I'm an ex-felon. I was a a drug smuggler. And I have people helping me, and, and all this all this comes about. And I, I am just floored. And if he can do this with me to your listening audience, I say, imagine what he can do with you. He wants to give us a good, meaningful, and purposeful life. Mm-hmm. And that is what I do. With, um, okay, this is that commercial moment. About I'm going to mention my book in DeLorean's Shadow. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on my web page, www.drugsbite.com. If you go for the Kindle version, it's got color pictures. Otherwise, you order the paperback. But uh, it is a book about hope. It's won uh, four major awards. Um, I, I wrote it to show that hope that never surrenders. And then I, and as you since you've read it, Travis, you see I document. I put in the file. I put in things that prove what I'm saying is true. Oh yeah, totally. And so this is this is what I want people. To, if you know anybody, anybody in the listening audience who knows somebody who's struggling with with hope, um, read this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it 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 make it it's it makes a difference and and share it, pass it around. Because my lifelong commitment is to encourage not just young people. I mean, we're losing adults to drug abuse, and we're losing people who are making these all these different mistakes. And you know, you don't know where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. And so, if you if you if you're making good choices, you know where it's going to go. And I'll say something else: is I believe that, and this is my own saying, I believe that all problems in life come wrapped in a blessing.
Man, I got you on that one, Travis. You're you're really pondering that one. Yeah, no, that's good. I like that. Yeah, it, you know, I don't want to be tested on certain things, but I mean, so far everything has come at me has been an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. And so there's, I got two things you don't know that are not in the book yet. Oh man, okay, okay. Is um, I'm talking to you from a motorhome parked on the lot where I used to live. Oh, okay. I lived in a town called Paradise, California. Mm-hmm. That ring any bells for you? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Want to tell me what it is? Well, that's where those fires happened, correct? Yeah. A fire hit the town of Paradise. It came without warning. It, we had had a drought. We had trees infested with, infested with beetles. And the uh, where it started, eight miles from the town of Paradise, it got down into the Jarbo Gap, and the winds were pushing it. And it was advancing at the rate of 80 football fields a minute. Whoa. It, uh, um, when that fire hit the, came up out of the Feather River Canyon, okay, before it actually comes out of the canyon, I'm at Feather River Hospital. It's, that was November the 8th. I was patient zero at Feather River Hospital in the morning of the fire. Uh, patient zero is the first patient going in for surgery for the morning. <laughs> I, I had a massive tear of my right rotator cuff, uh, all brought on by military things that I had done. You know, the abuses I had done had weakened the muscle and a separated right external bicep. And so it's going to be a three-hour procedure. And I'm going in at 7 a.m. And at a quarter to seven, the nurse goes, Mr. Arrington, where's your EKG? And I said, excuse me? She says, you don't have an EKG in your file. Where do they do your EKG? I said, they did it here at the Feather River Hospital. She said, why isn't it in your file? I said, I have no idea. She said, I got to call the surgeon. She makes a call, and she comes back pushing the cart. You're delayed. We have to uh, do an EKG. You're going in at 8 o'clock now. Mm-hmm. So at 8 o'clock, uh, this whole time, I'm on a gurney. I got the IV in. I've got the, you know, the, the backless shirt on, a gown. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to go. All the tests have been ready. I'm ready to go in. It's a quarter to eight now, and now they're going to do my surgery at a quarter to eight. And as they're ready to push me in, literally, they're just not that far, uh, the phone rings. And the nurse turns around and goes, hold all surgeries. We're on hold. And the nurse goes, oh, no, this is never a good thing. And then um, I go, what's going on? And somebody leans in. There's a fire in the in the canyon. And so I called my wife, and she said, yeah, because I got my cell phone. She said, there's a fire in the canyon. I didn't want to get you scared. She's such a brave woman. Mm-hmm. And um, 10 minutes later, they put out the call, evacuate the hospital. Jeez. That moment, it was, uh, I, I told my wife, send my, send my oldest son, send my boy, my only son. I have two daughters and a son. Send Chase, send my boy. Have him come get me. And so I, I get out. I, I get, he, uh, we only live a mile and a quarter from the hospital, maybe a mile and a half. So he was there like, bam. And he, he was a young man. He drives. He can get there quick. He had a little sports car. And um, he gets, I, I come out of the main room to the uh, exit of the uh, entrance of the hospital. And he pulls up. And across the street, I see a towering pine tree crowning with fire. Man. It has gone from morning sunlight to twilight. Embers are flying across the sky. 
It is so frightening. And we start driving and we're crawling because already traffic is starting to back up. Yeah. And we're hearing explosions. Those explosions are exploding pine trees and they're exploding propane tanks. Oh. It's like a war zone. As we pull out onto the street, we only got to have to go about a mile and a quarter, mile and a half. As we're going, fire is going over the top and embers are blowing across the road. And we're hearing more and more explosions. And when we get to my house, my house is on the Feather River Canyon. We're right there, just like the hospital. Yeah. And I run out in the back porch and my wife is slowly because she wasn't that concerned, she's kind of slowly loading stuff. She's really picking out, you know, what to take, what to leave. Because right. we've been evacuated before, and she didn't, she didn't think it was a big deal. And so I look, and I can't see anything. I can't see anything out of the canyon. There's too much smoke. But I hear this roar. And because I had been the chief engineer of an inmate fire crew that responded to the crash of the B-1A bomber mm-hmm. with a brush fire heading for it, it was that same roar, Ugh. magnified a hundred times. And then, as I started, as I turned away from the canyon, and I, I'm starting to rush back in the house to everybody go, I hear there's another roar coming down from the hospital towards us. And I knew we have minutes. And I route, I got my family together. I said, "We are out of here. We're leaving." We left in about ten minutes. Mm-hmm. We left. And um, our house was one of the very early ones. We were ground zero for the, the fire. And when we, it took us two and a half hours to make a 20-minute drive down to Chico. Um, it, was, it was very scary. Uh, yeah. Fire, you know, it's it all the stuff, all the smoke. I mean, 85 people died. 14,000 homes were burned. Um, and, and this is a small town. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was it was extraordinary what happened, and that fire would become not known not only as the worst fire in California in a hundred years, it was the worst catastrophe in the United States for 2018, and then it was rated the worst catastrophe in the world for 2018. That was oh the gosh. worst catastrophic single event. That was our small town of Paradise, Jeez. and right now I'm talking to you in a motorhome because we're back on our lot and in a week and a half we're going to break ground and rebuild our home nice okay now had i not been an inmate firefighter had i not had the experience that i had i might not have been able to convince my family we got to run now because mm-hmm. a lot of people didn't run in time and 85 of them died yep Okay, now I believe that God always wants to do what's best for all of us. How could God save me and particularly my family from the fire and not hurt anybody else doing it? How could He do that? Mm-hmm. You tell me. Uh, How could He? You know, think of think of a scenario where He would save me and my family without harming anybody else in any way whatsoever. I I mean I I really don't know. The EKG went missing. That's why I wasn't in 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 the surgical theater being operated on for a three hour surgery. I would have been one hour into a three hour surgery when that fire hit the hospital and made them evacuated. The hospital, by the way, has not worked ever since. Wow. Okay. 
that lost file saved my life. Yep. That lost file saved my family. Because they're all convinced that if that had not happened, we would not have made it out. Yeah. And this is why I tell people that they say, hey, you have lived the most amazing life. Uh Uh-uh. I am living the most amazing life. Mm -hmm. Man, that's crazy. It's still going, (laughs) huh, Stephen? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you ready for another one? (laughs) (laughs) Hit me with it. Yeah. Okay. Um, When I, I've already mentioned that when I was a bomb disposal frog and I was in charge of a team, my last memory of being a bomb disposal frog is the command was at morning quarters and there was two rows of Navy frogs all lined up. These are men that, you know, no man left behind. We had worked really hard. I went, when I went through a bomb disposal school, there mm-hmm. were 30, 32 of us in the class and, and we, we graduated six people. So you got a dog too. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. She's going. So, okay. <laughs> Sorry, we're all we're all confined here now in this in our little studio apartment. Okay, all right. Well, so what? Go okay, ahead. so uh, what happened is is wait, wait. I lost my track. I lost my track of thought here. Give me just let me recapture it. Okay, so when I fell from that position, I knew I would never be a chief again. And then God gave me my title back to me in prison mm-hmm. uh, as chief engineer. And it was not just being a chief; it was a chief with real authority. You know, the resp- that's the whole point of being a chief is you have to have the responsibility and the authority. Yeah, right. And, and so I was like, well, you know, wow, God, wow, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then when I got out of prison, I was prepared, you know, that, okay, I, I'm not going to be a chief ever again. Uh, in fact, when I was getting out of prison, I thought the only thing I was going to be a chief of was a mop and a bucket at a 7-Eleven, uh, maybe <laughs> a nice uniform, with a little, maybe a patch and my na- label, my name on it or something. And I become chief engineer. I become, excuse me, uh, uh, an instructor at the College of Oceaneering. And then I became the air diving supervisor at the College of Oceaneering. Mm-hmm. And then two years out of prison, I get hired as chief diver for Jacques Cousteau. And so I'm a chief again, three times. Yeah. I'm the chief in life. And I go that God, thank you, God. I mean, this was only important to me. I just want you to know that, but God is so in, wrapped up in our details. Well, in Fiji, when we opened up a clinic, now I'm going back 22 years. We've been in Fiji for a while. We opened up a clinic and we're going to do a big opening. They had six Fijian chiefs were going to be there for the opening of that clinic. And um, uh, they had all these people coming in. Also, the Paramount chief for that region was coming. So it was a big deal for the Fijians. So they really wanted to celebrate it. And we had something like a thousand Fijians present with these six chiefs. And uh, they came in to me as the elder, Fijian elder came in. And he said, um, you know, Mr. Steve, he said, uh, we've decided we're going to name the clinic the Arrington Clinic. Wow. And and I said, no, 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 you're not. (laughs) And I said, this is not about me. This is about God. Mm -hmm. Um, But this clinic is in a place called Bootha Bay. So you can call it the Bootha Bay Clinic. And and he, he walked out rather disgruntled. And he came back, he came back in and he has a big Fijian walking with him with this war club on his shoulder. And he said, Mr. Arrington, the six chiefs have just voted something. I said, what did they vote? He said, well, we, we have a big barbecue. We're doing a big affair. and We have gifts for the Paramount chief. And he can't come. He's not going to make it. But we, we're ready for a, a party. And we have all these presents. 
and we have to give them to somebody. <laughs> and so the be- the next best thing we can do is we can do a Fijian making of a chief ceremony. Okay. And I said, so you're going to make someone a chief? They go, yeah, we're going to make you a chief. Wow. And I'm going, what? And he says, and also, this is this is not something that's not up for discussion. If you say no, that guy with the club is going to hit you with it. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, he was teasing, but I, it was so embarrassing. It was so embarrassing. Um, and they had this big ceremony. It was a very traditional ceremony, and they, they made me a Fijian chief. Mm-hmm. And so after the ceremony, I said to the elder, I said, you know what? I have a problem with this. He says, what? And I said, well, I, I love this and everything, but why do you make me a chief? I said, I'm the chief of nothing and no one. And he goes, yes, that's right. Nobody's going to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, well, why did you make me a chief? And he says, well, because we wanted you to always identify with, Booth, with we and Booth the Bay. Mm-hmm. And so you'll always be like a chief to us. But, you know, I never felt that I was a chief because mm-hmm. I was a chief without responsibility. Yeah. So, uh, in 2015, Fiji was hit by Cyclone Winston. It was a Category 5, and it was the most powerful cyclone in recorded history to make landfall in the Southern Hemisphere, and it made a direct hit on the northern part of the big island of Viti Levu, where the capital of Fiji is at. And it destroyed thousands and thousands of homes. Mm-hmm. And the Nisukamai village, which is where the high chief is at, that village was devastated. And uh, Waisea Buniwa, uh, he is he is part of the house Matairoko, the first chiefly house of Fiji. His aunt is basically the great chief, the high chief on the main island of Viti Levu. It's a traditional thing, and the chiefs do have a lot of power. Um, and after uh, after our fire, months after the fire, Waisea Buniwa came out to visit me and. He said, Steve, he says, um, I need to share something very important with you, is our clan, our village, um, my great-grandfather, his great-grandfather was, um, had actually, he was like the King Kamehameha of, of Hawaii, uh, but in Fiji. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, unite, he united the clans under his war club, uh, most of Fiji, uh, the main island. And, um, when he, and then he, later on, he became a Christian, Seventh-day Adventist Christian, just like I am. And then his uncle became the high chief. And the village was up on the side of a mountain, the highest mountain in Fiji, and it's, it's called Sacred Property. And they, uh, they wanted to um, be—they're uh, very part of the traditional Fiji life— and they have traditional power, but they're a backwater village. It's the furthest, it's the most remote village on the main island of Fiji. And so they have no industry. They have no commerce. And their kids have to leave for medical uh, or for dental or for school. And to get to that village, you've got this long dirt road. And as you've got this long dirt road, you pass a total of 20 villages. And the only thing these 20 villages have for medical or dental assistance is a little government nursing station that often doesn't even have Tylenol. Oh, man. And to get to the, the government hospital is a three-hour drive on a, in a pickup truck uh, along a dirt road. And the villages don't particularly own a pickup truck. They, ha- they hire somebody who has one to come out and do stuff. And so when kids get sick or people get sick, they often they, they can't get to relief in time and they die. Oh, man. And so he and I had talked about building a clinic at Nasukamai before. We had talked about it 20 years earlier, but we just couldn't pull it together. 
And so he said, Steve, he said, I have to tell you a story, and you have to take this story very, very seriously. And I said, okay, why is that? He said, my great uncle, um, he lived to be 106. The high chief lived to be 100 years old. And the uncle would make prophecies. Not very many, but they came true. Uh, I don't need to get deep into this. What he said, people remembered. And they asked him, when will our village become important again? When will our village have support? When will we be, when, when do we get to have, you know, finances and stuff? Because they're poor. And he said, when the American Eagle lands and roosts in the village, then everything will change. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah came over to, it was in Sacramento, California from Fiji. And I brought him up to paradise and I showed him our destroyed town. And he told me about how destroyed his village was by winds that were over 200 miles an hour. And he said, Steve, he says, I need to tell you something. I need to tell you the story about the American Eagle. And I said, why did you tell me that story? He says, because the Klan believes that you are the American Eagle. Wow. And we have voted to adopt you. Wow. We are adopting you. He says, I am adopting you as my older brother, because I'm three years older than him. Uh-huh. I'm adopting you as my older brother. And my family and I, we all flew to Fiji. We went out to the Nisukamai village, and they did a formal, traditional adoption of a white person, something they've never done before. Mm-hmm. And I was my family and I were adopted into the house Matai Roko, which means first chiefly house of the Nisukamai in Fiji, and it is a lifetime appointment. Nice. And it will pass from me to either my son. They're hoping my son gets it because he's over six foot six. <laughs> but my daughters are in there. They're in the competition, too. Okay. But we, we will always be part of the Chiefly family. Wow. And we are in the process of building a clinic there that will, we've, we've cut the road. It costs us $20,000 to cut the special road um, to get it all situated so that we can build a clinic that's going to service all the 20 villages. Very cool. And the difference between what's happened to me before is this is a lifelong appointment, and I am a chief with responsibility to my clan, the yeah. Nisukamai. And I don't speak Fijian. And so this is why I can say, and I've said it for years, I have not lived an adventurous life. I am living an adventurous life. And I have shared it, Travis, with you and your audience today, because I want people to realize, believe in hope that never surrenders. Mm-hmm. With, with God, everything is possible. He tells us that he has a good path laid out for us, and he wants to bless us. And when we use those blessings to bless others, you will live the most incredible, exciting life you can possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. Dude, I love it. And so much of it just seems like so much of what you do and your your whole motivation for this is just to help others and do what you can for other people. Well, you know, I want to help young people. Yeah. And young and by the way, you're a young person. 
At 26, you're a young person. <laughs> I feel young. I'm good. You are young. You are yeah. young. Uh, and, you, and, and you will learn. You will learn through experience. And, you know, knowledge comes from experience. And it's not usually the good experience that knowledge comes from. It's from the bad experiences mm-hmm. that, you, that you really learn from. But what reinforces doing good is positive experiences, one after the other. And so I've, I'm living the American dream because I'm an ex-felon and my life should have been over. Mm-hmm. But you, in America, it's very unique. You can come back. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, well, even in, you know, when you got moved to the camp up in the desert, you were looking for, you wanted to join the, the firefighting crew there to, to help people, right? Exactly. Yeah. The, what, uh, the way I saw it is what job could I possibly do that would have more, do more good than being an inmate firefighter? Mm-hmm. I mean, what, is a, what does an inmate firefighter do? You have to be prepared to put your life on the line to save another, potentially even saving a member of your crew. Yeah. And we, we saved lives. As, a, as an inmate, I got to save lives. And you see, so my faith in God is absolute. Mm-hmm. I, sur- I surrender to him every single night. I wake up in the middle of the night and I just pray and pray and pray. I surrender my life to him uh, because he wants good for m- my family and for I. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, this is why I want people to read my book. In DeLorean Shadow. This is why I want to um, uh, speak at, this is why I speak at the schools and speak at the churches and speak at the lockups, because I really want people to know. And I know the impact is there, because I get the letters, I get the responses and everything else. And so I'm, I'm really, I'm working to make all this happen. And I will, as long as young people are willing to listen to me, I will be a motivational speaker. When they no longer want to listen to me, I'll just be a motivational writer. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> So what do you never think? Stop. Never stop. I like it. And there's always hope. Never surrenders. Um, so what do you kind of think about the, it seems like there's been a shift in kind of the attitude on specifically marijuana and the, you know, with it being legalized and everything. What are your thoughts on that? Well, okay. Uh, you know, I went to prison for two ounces of marijuana <laughs> or I see the Navy brig and it ruined my naval career. It was illegal. Yep. Um, I actually, I actually have very strong feelings about all of this uh, because I, I have been lecturing on this for years, and, and people give me information. And um, if a young person uh, does marijuana, um, they uh, find that if they're regular habitual users, which is what most somebody starts using, it, they become habitual. Uh, that they can lose seven points off their IQ for the rest of their life. Oh wow. Okay, it reduces the sperm count in young men. Now you might go, oh, so what? You know, so what? No, it means that you've impacted the uh, a very core feature of who and what you are in, in your physiology. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it makes you more lackadaisical. It's a motivation stealer. Um, it it has many more impacts uh, on on the brain. Uh, your chances of graduating from college just went down. Um, it slingshots your motivations right into the pit. Um, but Vaping has become very, very popular, mm-hmm. and it used to it used to be that marijuana was a wild growing weed that you would have a THC content of about point zero three of one percent to maybe up to one percent. Then we started growing it, made it a little bit more stronger. The THC content got up to three percent, uh, and now they're growing marijuana with a THC content of like twenty eight percent. Jeez, and 
Yeah, the, the, the impact is, is that marijuana is classified as a class one drug. It's a class one drug, right up there with ecstasy. Uh, cocaine's not a class one drug. This, no. this is, there's a reason why it's a class one drug. The impact that it, the negative, it's, it's based on how much of a negative impact it has on the body. And it has long-term effects. But now you can get uh, THC oil that's 100% THC. And so, and so young people vape this. They vape it, and they're getting a very, very powerful hit. And it has such a, they, they get a syndrome. Uh, it's, it's basically marijuana toxicity that is usually present only in middle-aged to, to older people who have smoked marijuana most of their life. They get this, they get dizzy, and they have uncontrollable projectile vomiting that is only relieved by soaking in a hot tub or a hot shower, but then it comes right back, and they don't even know what's causing it. And they think that 20 million people in the United States have it, and only 3% know why they have it. And now young people are getting it right away because they, uh, they're vaping so much. But... Travis, I hope you don't mind. I'm gonna. I have to ask the question of somebody, so I'm gonna have to ask it of you. When somebody is okay, when somebody is vaping and they exhale, what are they exhaling? What is that cloud? Uh, that? Smoke, steam. I don't know. Okay, steam. Uh, the the big answer is water vapor. Okay, right. Does that sound accurate to you? Uh, I mean, as f- I have no knowledge of it, so it's, I'm gonna guess no. Oh yeah, you're right. It's definitely not a water vapor. It's a it's a chemical aerosol. And okay. so when when people vape, here's what they're doing. All right, if you only vape to water, it still is working at killing you. Really? The re- yeah yeah. Here's why: is uh, when you take a vaping device, you use an lithium battery to give a big surge of energy to a heating element. Mm-hmm. The heating element is made out of certain metals. Normally, it's a combination of all, it can be all three, it could be two of the three, lead, cadmium, and tin. I just mentioned toxic metals to you. Yeah. Okay. They're catatonic. They'll kill you. They'll kill, they'll kill cells. Mm-hmm. And so when you heat up this element, when it gets hot, it expands. When it cools down, it contracts. It gets hot quickly, it cools down quickly. And so what happens is you get metal fatigue. With metal fatigue, you get the, sh- the shredding off of small to microscopic to nano-sized particles of tin, cadmium, and lead going into the lungs. Now, also what's going into the lungs is you have oils. Um, one of the oils that they use is, is these, one of the flavoring things that you use in popcorn. Uh, microwave popcorn. They say it's butter. There's no butter in it. What it has is it has this FDA-approved uh, flavoring, and it's an oil. Uh, next time you make a bag of popcorn and you microwave it and you pour it out and you eat it, open up the bag and run your fingers along the inside. They're going to come out oily and gritty. Mm-hmm. That that is the flavoring. When somebody inhales those flavorings, the flavorings can be FDA-approved for the gut. But they're not FDA approved for the digest for the respiratory system because your lungs can digest nothing. Right. Okay. So, so this stuff goes into the lungs. Now you also have other flavorings that are going in there, and then you have possibly concentrated nicotine, concentrated THC, and who knows what else? Over twenty six hundred different ingredients you can buy legally, let alone all the illegal ones. And so this stuff is going into the lungs. Now, when it goes into the lungs, you have these microscopic air sacs called alveoli. 
And the alveoli is when this smoke gets in there, this vapor gets in there. The carbon molecules are too large to go through into the bloodstream. The carbon molecules, mm-hmm. okay, the oils. And so they become trapped there. And they have metals embedded in it. And it has flavorings embedded in it. And then you get mold and fungus and microbes can begin to grow in this toxic soup that's in the lungs of children and teenagers and young adults. Man. And it becomes, they can become resistant to antibiotics. Jeez. And people, people who are smoking marijuana, THC, um, they found that if they added something, they want to stretch it out so they can smoke, you know, they, they don't use it all up at once. So the, you add vitamin E oil to it. Well, when you take vitamin E oil and you heat it up and you inhale it into the lungs, it becomes um, uh, so toxic to the body that when we had that rash of all these young people dying and older people dying from smoking, uh, from vaping with THC, and they said that their lungs looked like they had been victims of a mustard gas, gas attack in World War I. That's the impact of what happens when you vape vitamin E. Yikes. And so when you have all this stuff going in young people's lungs, it's killing them. Yeah. It's putting them in the, it's pulling them in the hospital. They are inhaling a chemical aerosol into their lungs. You can go 30 days without food. How long can you go, uh, and you can go three or four days without water? Mm-hmm. How long can you go without a breath of air? Uh, not more than eight minutes. <laughs> without a breath of air? Yeah, yeah, we know that now, but that was, <laughs> there was reasons for that. Yeah. Uh, but normally it's about three, or three minutes, three and a half minutes, four minutes max. Man. And there's something else, is now we have the coronavirus. Yeah. The coronavirus goes after the lungs of people who are either really old, have pre-existing conditions. It doesn't normally take the life of a young person. What about a young person who vapes? Mm-hmm. We don't know yet. We don't know yet. But I do not doubt that whenever, when all the numbers and the statistics are in, Many, many, many young people will die from coronavirus because they vaped. Mm -hmm. Man, that's scary. It is. And you see, we we don't know what we never know what's coming at us in life. We never know what life is going to lay on our on our plate, what what thresholds we're going to have to cross. And so the one thing that I know about me is that one at a certain time, I'm going to close my eyes, and I will pass from this planet. And when I open them again, the first thing I'm going to see is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to know eternal life. And that, I, be, I believe that our whole existence on this planet is to develop us to be able to go forward into the next level, into the next step. And I can guarantee it will be, nobody knows what heaven or any of that's going to be like. I know one thing. It's going to be about doing good. It's going to be about helping others in some way. Mm-hmm. So that's, I'm, that's, that's the university I'm attending, the University of Life. I like it. Yeah. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to go to the university of a, cr- cr- a federal criminal institution. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that one. Yeah. One thing one thing I want to touch on too is that kind of struck me while reading your book and while you were in prison is how you um you made sort of a you got a routine for yourself. You know, you were able to to you got the job of being able to clean and kind of get out of your cell, but then you were also, you know, getting up before everybody else, even in, in going for a run or working out. Um, was that just something that was kind of, you've always done or was there, you know, a specific reason for why you, why you chose to do that? Well, I, I've always done that um, because I, I, I live, I, I live to be out in the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to, I had a one year where I did not miss more than three or four sunrises and sunsets. I want to be out there to witness that. I want to be active out there doing it. But I had another incentive in prison. And that is, is the people who do the drugs and who are uh, preying on other people, that usually all happens at night. And so there, and with darkness comes dark things. Mm-hmm. And so I chose to get up really early in the morning, three thirty in the morning, and I would um, in my cell, I would practice my martial arts, I would practice my yoga, I would uh, uh, do a certain amount of deep praying and thinking about life. Uh, and when I got to a prison camp, uh, when, I, when I got into the general population at six a.m., I could go for a run in the morning. Uh, and when I got to the prison camp, I could run early in the morning, uh, and then I would retire to my bunk between 7 and 8 p.m., and I would go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And all the inmate intrigues, and they get worse when there's a full moon, all of it is not, hap- all of it is not happening to me. I'm not, I don't have to, I'm not a part of it. I don't have to witness it. Um, it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. That's smart. Set yourself up to just, you know, work around that as best you can and, and totally avoid it from your life. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Man, well, Stephen, this was great. So again, well, you, you mentioned your website, drugsbite.com. That's where people can, can grab the uh, copy of your book, correct? Yep. Drugsbite.com. Uh, great, you'll see a great white shark. I jumped into the water by accident uh, six feet from a 17 and a half foot long great white shark. Uh, you can see the video. You can see the video. You can see the, uh, the pictures. This is all before Photoshop. Yeah, and then also um, for the, our work with the with the Fiji, it's the dream like you're dreaming at night. MachineFoundation.org. Okay, perfect. DreamMachineFoundation.org. I'll have that uh, in the description for listeners to click on so they can check that stuff out. Cool. Well, man, Stephen, this is great. Any, I mean, is there anything else you kind of want to impart on the listeners, or anything you kind of want to close on? Well, you know, the, the the most important thing of all is um, you can go, you can come to God just as you are right now, okay? Just as, as you are right now, you don't have to change anything. You can come and you can open up. Um, my job in life is to introduce people to the Holy Spirit and then let the Holy Spirit take over from there. And that's how I ended my book. And that's how, how I'll end this story is look at, you know, as Travis, because you've read the book, you know we've only covered about a third of the things that happened to me mm-hmm. um, in prison that that were obviously influenced by God. Um, and at the end of the book, I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyhow, is I lay out all the things that happened, and I use that as a logical argument for God. Um, if, as, if you notice in this, in my sharing, I've not been preachy. I haven't been quoting the Bible. I haven't been, you know, hitting people over the head with with Christianity. What I've done is I've showed a logical reasons why 
we need to take a real good look at what we're doing with our lives and where do your life where do you want your life to go we, we can't do this alone uh, i mentioned that all the people who've who've helped me to achieve my dreams. I mean, I achieved my childhood dream after prison of becoming the chief diver and expedition leader for the Cousteau Society, not only as an ex-felon, not only still on parole, but I don't even speak the language. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so doing good work, if you, if you want to be the most popular person at school, do, do good things for other people. It's me on this. Don't expect a reward, but you're going to get them. Uh, when, you do good work, when you do good work, you feel good. I mean, that's a reward. But uh, it makes you a happier person, and it makes people want to be around with you, and you will have a load of friends, and you can help each other to find the dreams that you want to find. So, you know, go for your dreams, open up your heart, be a good person, and live an adventurous life. Cool. Love it. Well, thanks again, Stephen. Really appreciate you coming on and sharing all that stuff. So thank you so much. My pleasure. God bless you, Travis. You too. Thank you. That's it. Episode 80 is done. Thank you for sticking around to the end and listening to that all with me. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you again to Stephen for being on the show and sharing your story and that message with everybody. Really appreciate it and uh, means a lot to me. And thank you to you for listening to this again. And if you have anybody in your life who you think might enjoy this episode or kind of needs to hear the message that Stephen is sharing, please send them this episode. Uh, I'm sure they would appreciate it. And it really helps us out too by spreading the word of this show and getting it out to uh, some more folks. So just, you know, send us in, a, in an old-fashioned email. You can use word of mouth and just tell your friends with your face or uh, however else you'd like to share the episode. I'm on Instagram at Trav DeRose, T-R-A-V-D-E-R-O-S-E. So if you share this on your uh, Instagram or anything like that, tag me and I'll reshare it too, of course. And uh, send me an email if you have any thoughts, ideas, or tips, or criticism, or feedback, ideas for new episodes even. Uh, My email is Travis at CuriosityNest.com. But that's all I have to say. Thank you for being here and have a good one.